0: Reconstructionist Radio presents Justice in His Kingdom, examining the religious nature of justice with Jerry Lynn Ward and Roger Oliver.
1: Roger and I are very happy to welcome Mike Ware today to our podcast to talk about issues for justice, for our show, Justice in His Kingdom. And let me just tell you a little bit about Mike. Mike is a criminal defense attorney and he graduated with honors from the University of Texas with a degree in philosophy and attended and graduated from the University of Houston Law School. And he has always practiced uh, criminal law. uh, And he also had a stint at the DA's office, which I'm gonna get him to talk about. Uh, Mike, what led you to the practice of criminal law?
0: Well, you know, there's, there's a real long answer to that question. Uh, but the short answer is that was really the only thing in law or the main thing in law that interested me.
1: And not only have you uh, been a criminal defense lawyer, you also have worked for the district attorney's office in Dallas. Can you tell everybody about what you did there?
0: Yes. You know, I, I, uh um, passed the bar and got my bar results in 1983. So that tells you a little bit about how old I am, but, um, I, I never, all I really wanted to do is be a criminal defense lawyer. I never wanted to work in a prosecutor's office. And for the first 23 years or so, that's what I did. I I opened my own practice. Uh, well, I clerked for a year for a federal district judge here in Fort Worth, which is where my criminal defense, uh, practice is. And uh, and after that, opened up my own office, and have you know been on my own as a criminal defense lawyer since then. Except that in 2006, um, Craig Watkins got elected district attorney of Dallas County, and uh, and took office in 2007. And Craig was the first African American ever to be elected to that office. Uh, he in Dallas or anywhere in Texas for that matter. Um, and he was, uh, not from within the office and he beat, um, the de facto incumbent, uh, the, the lawyer who had been the first assistant for the prior district attorney. And so basically he represented a big change, um, because he wasn't from inside the office and because he was African American. And a lot of people I believe in the office were, um, Scared of that, they were. I think they were afraid of of what kind of um, um, malfeasance had been perpetrated in the office over the years. Uh, they were used to; they could do what they want with confidence that uh, that no, that it would be covered up <laughs> by the administration, and and they no longer had that confidence with Craig. And a lot of the a lot of people there was what I think I'd fairly characterize as panic. And people resigning from the office. And then, in fact, his first day in office, he fired 10 uh, of the uh, top prosecutors in the office because of uh, the reputation and practices they had for prosecutorial misconduct, which, you know, until that point, they had completely gotten away with. So, anyway, he um, had the wisdom to hire a good friend of mine, Terry Moore, to be his first assistant. Um, Terry, like me, was from Fort Worth, um, and uh, she had been in the Tarrant County District Attorney's Office and the United States, United States Attorney's Office, so both a state and federal prosecutor. She was a, a criminal defense lawyer at the time. She had also run for district attorney in Tarrant County, and so she had experience in politics, so she was a great person for him to choose to run his office. Um, And that's what the first assistant generally does. You know, the the elected D.A. goes out and talks to the Rotary Club and whatever, talks to the church groups and is the politician. And then they have to have somebody who actually knows the law and knows how to try a case and, you know, knows how to run a large um, metropolitan district attorney's office, the personnel uh, the HR aspects and all that. And, and that, was, that was Terry's job as first assistant. Um, and she, because Dallas County had such a terrible reputation uh, of convicting innocent people and, and um, prosecutorial misconduct, um, et cetera, they, Terry decided to form what she called a conviction integrity unit. Um, and she asked me to leave private practice in 2007 and come over and uh, and start the first ever conviction integrity unit in the country where we, as the district attorney's office, would go back and under our mandate, under the ethics rules and under the law, pursue justice rather than just convictions. And uh, so we went back, we were to look back and investigate questionable convictions from the past. We did other things, but questionable conditions, convictions from the past and see which ones of these guys or, or women, these individuals, had, were innocent and had been convicted wrongfully. But we were doing it from within the office, sometimes in cooperation with an attorney that represented the individual, sometimes in cooperation with groups like the Innocence Project in New York, Barry Sheck's um organization. Uh, but sometimes it was on our own. I mean, sometimes we found a case that this person was obviously innocent, had been convicted because of prosecutorial misconduct. And we would have to ask that they be appointed a lawyer um, because we couldn't, you know, we can't represent individuals. Um, so some of it was all on our own. And, and during the course of Terry and I stayed there four years from 2007 to 2011, we both left at the same time. And we share office space now as criminal defense lawyers. But during that time, we exonerated, I would say, 25 men uh, who were absolutely innocent uh, and then started a lot of investigations during that time that ended up in exonerations after we left because they kept the conviction integrity unit after we left. Now, uh, there are conviction integrity because of the success we had and the publicity There are conviction integrity units all over the country, I think 50-something. And the National Registry of Exonerations has said there are, I forget the number, well over 400 exonerations now that are attributed to the various conviction integrity units all over the country, which include Los Angeles, New York City, Brooklyn, and uh, I think uh, all the uh, urban areas in Texas, with the exception possibly of El Paso.
1: Yeah, I remember in the 70s when I was both in college and law school, the Dallas D.A. did not have a good reputation back then either. So it's been a long-standing problem.
0: And, and the thing is, they were proud of it. You know, I mean, it was it, it, they they uh, they were proud of their I, I mean, I say that they were proud of their bad reputation, um, you know, uh, or, or, or let me put it this way, very arrogant about it. They didn't care what people said about them. They were going to convict everybody, give give them uh, as long a sentence as they could, or the death sentence. And, um, and they knew that that was what was going to get them reelected uh, and, and to continue on. Um, and when we started this unit, um, it was considered by us and by everybody very, very politically risky. I mean, it was... It was, um, uh, it had never been done before. No one had ever had the concept before and uh, the police hated us for it. Um, Frankly, a lot of the victims groups didn't like it. Um, and, And, and of course, all we were doing is exonerating innocent men and women who had been wrongfully convicted. That's it. You know, and, and, and of course, no one could formulate an argument against that and articulate it publicly, but the, but the whisper campaigns and, and the out-and-out uh, the, the out hatred for what we were doing was palpable. People really, really wanted us to make a mistake that would embarrass us, and we didn't. Uh, we were very careful about what we did, and, um, and it's, it's really, I can say it's very rewarding to see someone uh, that we exonerated, like Richard Miles, uh, who has now started his own nonprofit, Miles of Freedom, and started a beautiful family, and 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 to see you know that as an example of of you know some of the good work that we did.
1: What caused his conviction?
0: Um, you know, racism. Um, uh, general attitudes among the, the, the investigating detective, um, prosecutorial misconduct, and uh, uh, bad eyewitness identification.
1: Okay, and we're going to get into some of those in a minute, but one reason that I wanted you to be on this podcast is because not only do you have this history and also a history in the past of, of helping uh, defend people and exonerate them is that that you are the executive director of the Innocence Project of Texas. And I would like for you to tell folks what that is and what the mission of that organization is.
0: Sure. I I, uh, I co-founded the organization as a nonprofit in 2006. And of course, we just sort of gotten off the ground when I had to leave um, to become, you know, the, the uh, um, head of the Conviction Integrity Unit in Dallas County. I couldn't, you know, obviously be in the DA's office and uh, on uh, the board of uh, a nonprofit like the Innocence Project of Texas. Although we did work closely with the Innocence Project of Texas in some cases when I was in the DA's office, uh, as well as, you know, the New York Innocence Project and Barry Schick. Um But, um, um I'm sorry. What was your original question? I started getting off track.
1: Well, I, I just wanted you to tell us what they did. And I think you've done that.
0: Well, yeah. Okay. The Innocence Project of Texas. Sure. And, and so, um, it, you know, it remained active when I left in 2007. And when I came back, left the DA's office in 2011, I rejoined the board and started working on innocence cases, you know, pro bono as a member of the board. And we had, um, you know, in, in, A case I started working on right away when I came out um, resulted in the exoneration of four completely innocent women out of San Antonio. Of course, the exoneration took five years, uh, but they were finally exonerated, all four of them completely in 2016. And so during that time, I was I was on the board um, and working cases. And then in 2015, we had a, a personnel shift and I took over as the executive director of the Innocence Project of Texas and be- began to actually actively running um, the uh, nonprofit rather than just being on the board. So I've been the executive director for five years now.
1: Now, one thing I want to, uh, uh, you know, taking the, both the Innocence Project of Texas and these, co- these conviction integrity units, uh, those are something that have been formed outside the legal system. Why is it so difficult within the system to exonerate the actual innocent? In fact, it seems like sometimes it's it's easier to get to overturn a, uh, convictions just based on technical reasons than it is to exonerate someone who's actually innocent. Why it, is our system like that?
0: Um, that? That's a really great question. And, and first I, I want to make sure something that we're clear on something you said at the initial, you said something about C- the CIUs and, in the, uh, um, um uh, innocence projects are out outside the legal system. I'm not sure what you. Well,
1: mean. well they're not part of like the appellates, the, the appellate courts. There's something that's been added on. They're not like in the official, uh, judicial system,
0: but you're right. It, they're not in the judicial judicial system, That that's correct. Although, um, you know, the DA's offices uh, are arguably much more powerful than the judiciary, but, uh, wow. but still the judiciary has the last word. And let me, you know, the, the concept of an innocent person being, being convicted um, in reality is, is fairly new. Um, I mean, it, it, it existed on TV and in movies But, you know, when I first started practicing in 1983, 1984, um, I mean, I think I was an exception, but but with exceptions, nobody really believed they happened. Certainly nobody in the district attorney's office believed that they happened. And and so there was no um, there was no legal remedy, really, uh, for someone who was all they if, if all they had was I didn't do it and I got convicted because the jury got it wrong. There was no um, legal vehicle for them to receive relief unless they could find some constitutional violation um, over and above that. Now, the DNA exonerations that started happening in the 90s across the nation started opening people's eyes because they started establishing someone who looked for all the world totally guilty uh, through scientific evidence was actually innocent. People were still skeptical, but in a lot of cases, and this was true in Dallas, in several cases, we were able to not only exonerate someone, we were able to identify the actual perpetrator and take apart the investigation and show exactly where it went wrong and why the DNA tests were right. And so that started changing. You know, the the courts started catching up to that and started saying, well, in in Texas, what are we going to do? What are we going to do if... uh, um, if someone, um, you know, say all they've got is a DNA test it, that proves they're innocent, and then the actual person who did it is identified, and then it's established through other evidence that the person who actually did it did do it. I mean, there are, you know, obviously a mistake is made, but yet we can't identify a constitutional violation. You know, we can't identify prosecutorial misconduct, although there probably was some, it had just been covered up. Um, We can't um, say it was bad science. It was just, you know, the victim coming into court and saying, that's the guy who did it. I'm absolutely positive. And that was good enough for the jury. Um, How are we going to give this person relief? There's nothing in our jurisprudence that allows for relief in that situation. And so what the Texas court of criminal appeals did to their credit is they formulated a, um, a freestanding post-conviction claim based solely on actual innocence. And if a person, but they've set a very high, high standard, they themselves called a Herculean standard. I guess, I guess that's named after Hercules. Mm-hmm. I don't know, but, but I guess it's them trying to be cute and talk about how, um, difficult it is to meet that standard. But if you can meet with new evidence, if you can meet, by clear and convincing evidence that had the same jury that convicted this individual, heard this new evidence on top of the old evidence. And of course, if if, if the new evidence is evidence that could have been presented or could have been discovered back at the time of trial, then you don't get to use it. You have to establish number one, that it's new evidence that was not known at the time of trial and could not have been discovered through reasonable diligence at the time of trial, or you can't use it. Doesn't matter how innocent you are. And, um, so, but if you can do that, then they will, if, if they can say that same jury would have granted, would have found the person not guilty based on this new evidence, then they can get relief based on actual innocence. There's a lot of controversy in the court. There's a lot of former prosecutors on, on the court, which is by the way, a completely all white court that, that don't like actual innocence. And so there's some resistance there and And but I'll say this they're ahead of the United States Supreme Court, which to this day does not recognize actual innocence as a legitimate freestanding claim for relief.
1: Well, and that gets us to the theme of our show, which is the religious nature of justice and in accordance with God's law. And to me, it's appalling that these judges would not place a premium on truth. And that's one reason we we wanted to get you here, because we want to go back and unwind why these false convictions are happening and address several issues about that. And the first thing that I talked to you about when I asked you to be on the show were false confessions and what their causes are. And I have to tell you, I have listened to every single once I found it, I have listened to every single wrongful conviction podcast of the innocence project in the last few months and and to the point that sometimes I think I'm going to have a heart attack over it uh, and and learned a lot about false confessions and why they happened that I had never heard about so I would like you to help educate our listeners about that because as I told you when I sent you the invitation, there are, biblical limitations on the use of confessions, because the incentive was to prevent torture, to prevent uh, people being tortured in order to confess. And when Christendom reigned in the West, in Western civilization for many years, uh, torture had become almost non-existent until about the 12 or 13 hundreds when it came back into, to use. Uh, so I would like you to enlighten our fellow Christians about why these, why someone would falsely confess to something and what, what are the techniques that are used to induce those?
0: Well, of course, you know, uh, A false confession is something that's really hard to wrap your mind around, you know, for your average person. Um, And and, and by false confession, um, I'm I'm not talking about one that is coerced through torture uh, necessarily, although they can happen that way. Uh, I'm talking about something where someone confesses, says they did a crime, a horrible crime that they in fact had nothing to do with and what would cause them to do that short of what we would call coercion or torture. And, um, and it happens much more often than I would have thought it would, but it does. I've seen it. I've, I've, I've seen, we've got a case we're working on now. That's obviously a false confession. Um, when I was in the Dallas DA's office, Um, we worked on a case, um, a a guy named Stephen Brody, um, who was a deaf kid. Uh, And the Richardson detective uh, worked on him for, I don't know, 18 hours and several days, most of it without an interpreter. Most of them, most of just passing this deaf, at that time he was 19, this deaf kid, and finally got him to say enough that the, the, the detective, the Richardson detective could say, well, he's now confessed. Um, and it, it was totally shameful. And that happened in 1991. And we were able, when I was in Dallas from 2007 to 2011, Steven's father asked us to review the case. We did. We exonerate, we were able through DNA and other means to exonerate Stephen. And to identify the actual perpetrator of this horrible crime, who we were able to go back and prosecute 20 years later successfully twice, because he did it two more times and twice and got him two life sentences. And so, you know, I mean, that's an indication that, you know, many times the police and prosecutors are not really concerned as much as they talk about are not really concerned about public safety because, Falsely convicting Stephen Brody did nothing for public safety. Uh, Temporarily, it made them heroes, false heroes, but temporarily it made them heroes. But it didn't protect the public safety from the actual perpetrator who went on to do this again and again. Um, And um, so every false confession is different. Stephen Brody, um, I think, was vulnerable because they worked on him for so long because he was deaf um, because, you know, he was, um, although he was at that point, a high school graduate, I, I think he was probably had special needs. Um, and, uh, um, but it, it, happens surprisingly across all demographics. There's, there's an excellent, actually, I think there's two documentaries on the same subject matter. I've seen them both and one's better than the other, but there's, they there. they're, they're I believe it was the Norfolk Four. Um, they were um, Navy, um, mm-hmm. or they were in the Navy. They were, you know, um, and and, and uh, they, in 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 the documentary interviews, all of them, uh, they seem like normal people. Um, maybe even a, one one in particular, maybe even above average, but somehow the detective was able to get confessions. Out of three of the four, something like that, four crimes, none of them committed, none of them committed, and, and, and in that case, through DNA, they identified the actual perpetrator. So I, I say that because it, the documentary will shock you, and and eventually, uh, the governor of Virginia, I believe, did commute their sentences or issue pardons or whatever. Um, but it, it will open your eyes that although there are certain demographics that are more vulnerable to giving false confessions, probably almost none of us are immune from giving a false confession. Um, and, um, and, and the, the general um, go-to culprit of false confessions is what's called the read technique. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you can Google the Reed technique and find out all kinds of things about it. Um, There is an excellent article in The New Yorker from about uh, several years ago, at least five years ago, called The Interview that tracks false confessions and John Reed, his career and the Reed. I guess it's Reed Incorporated now. It's become a big business. Uh, They make a lot of money going across the country teaching police how to Get people to confess, and and um, um, and in fact, fairly recently, um, a, a, a young man named Juan Rivera uh, won, uh, I believe, it was like twenty or twenty-five million dollar judgment um, in uh, the Chicago area, uh, which is where Johnny Reed and Associates is headquartered. Uh, Because and and, and I think five million of that or so was was assessed against Johnny Reed and associates for their role in getting him to falsely confess. And in fact, Johnny Reed's first big, high publicized um, confession that he got after he left the Chicago Police Department and was sort of a freelance, I guess, confession getter. Um, And I can't remember the man's name. He's very well known turned out to be a false confession. And it was during the fifties, I believe. And, and in fact, um, not that long ago when this man was 80 or so, he was exonerated. And, and I believe the, the actual perpetrator was identified that many years later. So Johnny Reed's big career started off with a false confession, uh, which I found ironic. Wow. And, um, um, and and but they're still in business today. Uh, they had to pay out something like five million to Juan Rivera for the false confession they helped um, secure in his case. Um, but it's as best I can tell. I don't pretend to understand. It's best I can tell. The, the the best analogy I can think of it's it's like a very high pressure sales technique. Mm-hmm. And uh, but it's a very high pressure sales technique where the salesmen have you locked up and have guns and and are and are uh, trained in, in getting confessions, whether you did it or not, they're trained in getting you to say you did it. And, um, and it, it's not, you know, maybe it walks the line sometimes, but according to the courts, it's not illegal in that they're not beating people. They're not, um, um, you know, making outrageous promises they can't keep that it it's all just it's 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 very analogous to a high pressure sales technique
1: well from the podcast i've listened to it seems to me that there is an element of terrorizing people in the reed technique and 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 one particular case i can't remember the name of the uh the defendant but it was a teenager and it reduced the teenager in fact this may have happened in more than one case into making up dreams about uh, how a crime could have happened and that turning into a confession. And, you know, that's a form of spectral evidence. Spectral evidence was largely responsible for the Salem witch trials. A lot of people were executed because of spectral evidence until a high-ranking pastor came in and put a stop to that. And Roger, I think you've got some questions.
0: Well, I have, By the way, I, I've I've been to the Salem Witch Museum in Salem, Massachusetts. It's uh, it's pretty interesting. But anyway, I, I digress. Go ahead. <laughs> well, I just
2: uh, a quote from Brent Allen Win- Winters in his book Excellence of the Common Law. He said, "Experiences has sh- experiences shown the power of accusation will cause the human in his frailty to doubt even his clear innocence. That's the power of Satan, the great accuser."
0: That, that's fascinating. And I think that's absolutely true. And I think that happens sometimes in the case we're working on now. It's, it's really in some cases, um, uh, where's my mind today? What's, what's the term where someone convinces somebody else they're crazy? Um, Gaslighting. Gaslighting. Ah, Yeah. It's really, it's a form of gaslighting and, um, in, in a lot of cases, and I think particularly, I mean, like these, these Navy guys in Norfolk, they're, they're military. They're, they're taught to respect authority. Um, in this case we're working on now, um, he was former military, honorably discharged and, and, um, and, in you know, respected authority. As a matter of fact, he was um, a licensed jailer at the time uh, he gave this false confession to a Texas Ranger. Um, and, 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 and it it is, it's a form of gaslighting. It's like, my gosh, I, I respect authority. I respect the police. I respect the Texas Rangers, whatever. Why would they tell me I had done this if I hadn't? I mean, what is it? What is it? I don't remember. I mean, what, what could have, and, 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 and they don't necessarily completely buy it, but it does make them doubt it can, you know, after hours and hours of these, you know, Men who are, you know, and of course, Texas Rangers are wearing a cowboy costume, but uh, but to, but with some people that gives them credibility. Why why would these people be telling me I did this if if they had nothing to go on? And so I I think at some point a lot of point is someone who has been successfully gaslighted they do start to doubt their own um, their own sanity, and of course they're told. Well, I can't, I can't promise you anything, but it will go a lot easier on you if you just go ahead and say it. And, and um, um, as a matter of fact, we'll, we'll let you go today. Um, And, and, and we'll talk to the DA. We can't guarantee we'll have that. We'll let you go today. If you'll just say it, it'll go a lot easier on you. But if you don't say it and, and they're allowed to lie and do lie about the evidence that they had. And so. You know, I mean, in this this case we're, work, we're working on, they, they told them they had video. They told them, you know, whatever. In some cases they say DNA and you go, well, how can you have video when I was never there? And well, we do. We do. How can you have DNA if I was never there? Well, we do. And we're going to convict you. And it's going to be a lot easier on you if you just say you did it. And you can even leave today if you'll say you did it. And uh, we can't guarantee you that we're not going to, you know, we're not going to charge you. But but it's going to go a lot easier on you if you just own up. And, and they, they present false scenarios that kind of give them an out. Um, well, maybe this was self-defense, you know. And, and they don't believe it was self-defense, you know, whoever committed this murder. But they believe if they can at least get this person to say they did it, then they can worry about rebutting the self-defense defense later in court, you know, mm-hmm. that sort of thing.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Uh- uh- I was just going to comment. It seems to me like we're stacking up reasons that support the biblical concept that a confession is never uh, a reason to convict. You cannot coerce a confession. You cannot convict a person by a convict, By As we read in the, in uh, RJ Rush article that you sent us. Uh,
1: that, I, that I sent you. Hmm? Right. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's another thing I want to get into because, uh, what it talks about is in the book of Joshua Achen uh... when they besieged the city of Jericho they were instructed not to take any kind of loot and he uh... in fact disobeyed that and he caused the uh... he he caused the uh... in the next siege of Ai he caused a lot of deaths of the Hebrews and so um sorry about that and and so uh Joshua was to- was told by God that he had done this so they had evidence from God that Achan had disobeyed God and that was the cause of their defeat they also eventually got a confession from Achan but they didn't move then they went and investigated further and got actual physical evidence and they fulfilled all the requirements of God's law with regard to witnesses and, uh, and physical evidence and did not take any action just on the basis of his confession. And many of these false confessions that we've been, t- we've been talking about it doesn't seem like they make their case through physical evidence or necessarily through witness evidence because from what I've heard on these podcasts I've been listening to, a lot of times the, the statement or the so-called confession of the of the victim of a wrongful conviction had the actual facts completely wrong.
0: It's- yes, that, that's that's all true, and 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 wow, I, I wish. Um, more police investigative agencies would take a, a le- take a lesson from that part of the Bible, but mm-hmm. but the fact is, here's what happens often uh, in both false confession cases and mistaken eyewitness identification cases. Both of which your average person thinks would be a gold standard in evidence. I mean, if someone is if someone is saw the saw the crime happen, maybe they're the victim, saw the crime happen, says they're absolutely certain that's the person or if the person, um, you know, says they did it. To most jurors, one or the other is, is all they need to convict somebody. Um, and, and generally what happens is, you know, there is, um, you know, some violent crime is committed, whatever it may be. And um, for whatever reason, someone becomes to the police a suspect. Maybe there's no evidence that they did it. Maybe it's somebody, the police just don't like, Um, you know, uh, maybe there's some reason to kind of sort of suspect they may have done it. And and so the police decide that's who they're going to blame it on. And, and honestly, when I was in Dallas, what I saw again and again, and I really believe this is, is sometimes the police seem to have an attitude that for example, if a black man committed this crime, then a black man needs to go to prison for it. It doesn't have to be the same black man. Um, And, and so I saw that in Dallas. Um, And so for whatever reason, they decide they're going to put it on somebody Mm -hmm. and um, they, they get them in. And if they can get a confession out of them, a false confession, now that's their case. They don't have to do anymore. Now that's their case. And, and, and same with eyewitness identification, uh, and I saw this again and again, you know, where, where, DNA exonerated someone, identified the actual perpetrator years later, and the actual perpetrator looked nothing like the person who got convicted. Um, in, in Thomas McGowan's case, one of our exonerees, the, we went back with the original detective and looked at the original photo spread, which was in 1984. And, and the actual perpetrator who we identified through DNA, once we did the DNA test, was in the photo spread that McGowan was in, yet yet the victim passed over the photo of the actual perpetrator and mistakenly identified McGowan. Then he got convicted, both of the burglary and the sexual assault, and got two stacked life sentences based solely on the victim's testimony. Uh, those trials were in 1984 and 1985 in Dallas County, and we went back. We, we 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 tested the DNA. We got a solid male profile. We put it into the CODIS database. It identified an offender who had gone on to commit other like crimes, and who was currently in the Texas prison for a like crime. He gave us, speaking of confessions, he gave us a full audio recorded confession. Which, when the victim listened to it, she realized she had identified the wrong person, because she said he said some things in that confession that she had never told anybody, and and there's no way he could have known about it unless he was the perpetrator. He even authored a letter of apology to her, but he didn't look anything like the uh, Thomas McGowan. And as a matter of fact, he was like I said, he was in the photo spread, and she passed over him. So I've seen again and again when we've identified the actual perpetrator. Years later, and gone back and looked at the photos, and they look nothing like the um, actual perpetrator or the, the person convicted. What I draw from that is what police officers have told me on the sly, and that is they can get anybody to pick anybody. Um, you know, they they show up, they're the authority figure, and they can either do something as blatant as say, "This is the person who did it. You need to pick that person." Most people will comply. Most people will comply with the badge and the gun and the uniform and the authority and say, okay, well, if you say that's who did it, I'm sure you're right. And then when they go to court, they're identifying the person in the picture, you know, not the, you know, not the person who actually committed the crime. They can even be more subtle than that. They can say, well, you might want to take a look at number two, you know, and, and then they go, hmm, I think it's number two. And then, of course, they celebrate, tell them how good they did, and reinforce the choice. And so, really, you know, a confession, kind of like eyewitness identification, is to make the case that they otherwise don't have, to make the case on the person they want to blame it on, when otherwise they have no evidence. Of course, once they have the confession, the quote unquote confession, or the um, false eyewitness identification, um, they're going to get a conviction, you know? And, um, you know, I mean, in some cases it might be the actual perpetrator, but, you know, in many cases it's not the actual perpetrator. And, um, and, 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 and they're going to, they're going to either pretty much stop their investigation at that point or everything they do from that point forward is going to, is, is going to be a biased investigation that points towards the guilt of that person. They're going to go back and re-interview all the witnesses and get the witnesses to kind of change what they said before the uh, suspect had been identified Mm -hmm. and and to to sort of conform to what they want the witnesses to say now. And then by the time it gets to court, it looks like a rock solid case, but it's not, it's, it's all a lie.
2: Mm -hmm. I I noticed listening to these, several of these accounts, (laughs) That the investigators tend to fall in love with their theory, and they and they eliminate. It's a natural human tendency, and I'm sure part of it is there's good people that uh, fail at this uh, because of our natural human tendency. We got too much to do, but the tendency is to fall in love with a theory, and then you you have a, uh, a confirmation bias. I think they call it that your theory is the right one, and you just overlook. It just it doesn't even enter your head, Some something that's glaring in front of you that may counter your theory.
0: That's absolutely right. I mean, it, it's also called tunnel vision. That's kind of a layman's term, but confirmation bias is the psychological term. Yeah. Absolutely.
1: Well, the, the problem I have with this is, is they're building cases that are lies. Mm-hmm. They're building cases that are violations of the Ninth Commandment, and there is no accountability for doing this. And so when you're dealing with human nature in a system that has no accountability, I don't know how you can solve the problem. Can you talk about the lack of accountability sure. for doing these kinds of things?
0: Sure. That That's, that's yet another great issue. Um, you know, it's like, I mean, my wife, um, is, has been in childhood education for her entire career. And she talks about how teachers are accountable. Um, Administrative principals are accountable. Um, you know, people in almost all professions are accountable, highly accountable. Why aren't police officers and prosecutors accountable? Cause they're not basically. Um, maybe that's changing. Um, but, uh, You know, I and and really not to go too far off into this, Mm
1: -hmm.
0: but I'm going to say it because it's true. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: A lot of it, they're not accountable because so many of the people who are falsely convicted are minorities and their lives are not valued even when they even the way a, a white person's life would be even even if there is no doubt that they were innocent that they were falsely convicted and there was prosecutorial misconduct involved if the person who was falsely convicted was black i believe the the bodies that can that can make them accountable do not take that as seriously as they would if the person who was falsely convicted was white, and um, um, and you know I can cite anecdotal evidence for that, but I, I I won't go into that right now.
1: Well, let me give you two examples of that. The the only prosecutors that I can think of who have suffered any kind of consequences are the prosecutor out in uh, North Carolina. Uh, where, where's Duke? Again, is that North Carolina?
0: Yeah, it's in Durham.
1: And Durham, uh, w- who falsely uh, prosecuted the lacrosse, uh, w- the lacrosse, the Duke yes. lacrosse? Yeah, yeah, I game. know. Yeah. And then,
0: who, by all accounts, in all fairness and all accounts by everybody, was a pretty good guy. I mean, you know, that's that's so typical of these prosecutors who engage in this misconduct. You know, um, but but yeah, and of course and then, they're and all white
1: and then Ken Anderson who had a very attra- who whose victim was a very attractive um, white former executive
0: yes totally innocent and and Ken Anderson you know people complained that what he got was not serious enough but what he got was was a thousand times more serious than what the prosecutor got in the Richard Miles case for example and, and, and the in in my opinion, the prosecutorial mis w- and what the prosecutor got in the Richard Miles case was nothing. Uh, and and um and in my opinion, the misconduct in the Richard Miles case was even more severe than the than the prosecutorial misconduct in uh, the Michael Morton case, as serious and egregious as the prosecutorial misconduct in the Michael Morton case was. But you've got um, you got a, a sitting judge in the Michael Morton case having to serve 10 days in jail or whatever it was for something that happened 20 years or whatever it was prior to that and losing his law license. Um, and in the Richard Miles case, um, nothing. And, and Richard Miles has gone on to, to vindicate himself so well. He's, he's got a, a thriving nonprofit in which he helps um, people with reentry. Uh, he's got a beautiful family now. And uh, but yet, I honestly think that the uh, that the wrongful conviction in his case was considered less important because of his race.
1: Now we do have a situation down in the in Harris County where a man named John Clark was wrongfully prosecuted, where the prosecutor withheld exculpatory evidence that would have proved the alibi of of Mr. Clark. This was the black guy down in Houston who was accused of being part of a robbery. And and ADA Rizzo hid phone records that proved his innocence. And I think the state bar is actually looking
0: at him. Now are you now I I think I've heard of the John Clark case, but Rizzo was also in the Alfred Brown case. And there were hidden phone records in that case as well. Is that Oh, I
1: mean I probably have the name wrong. It was Alfred Brown, you're right.
0: Okay. Yeah. And, and of course he's, that case is the subject of, of one of the, uh, um, innocence files episodes. I don't know if you saw that or not.
1: Yes, I did. That's where I got it.
0: Yes. And so I, we'll see what happens. I mean, you know, that, that case has maybe gotten enough publicity that, um, the powers that be will feel pressured to actually do the right thing. Um, I, I will, we'll see what happens. I know that, that, the, the police officers union in Houston um, have been very nasty about mm-hmm. that case. Uh, they um, y- even though Mr. Brown is entitled to compensation because the district attorney dismissed his case based on innocence. That means under the statute, he's entitled to compensation. They got involved and I guess intimidated, I think, along with the A.G., and intimidated the state controller and from giving him his compensation, and that matter is at the Texas Supreme Court right now. And we at the Innocence Project of Texas, we were not Mr. Brown's attorneys, but we did um, file an amicus brief in support of Mr. Brown with the Texas Supreme Court.
1: Well, I'm hoping that we will see some justice in that case. And Roger, you had some questions about that.
0: No, no I just got. I have a
2: interesting quote that's related to all of this from G.K. Chesterton. Way back in 1930, says, and the horrible thing about all legal officials, even at best, about all judges, magistrates, barristers, detectives and policemen is not that they are wicked. Some of them are good, not that they are stupid. Several of them are quite intelligent. It is simply that they have gotten used to it.
0: I think that's that that's so true. Uh, And, 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 you know, it, it sort of is consistent with what I said about the North Carolina prosecutor. Um, and, and what people say about a lot of prosecutors who get caught, um, um, engaging in, engaging really in felonious conduct. Um, we've got a case out of Bell County, uh, where, uh, the, the prosecutors, uh, suborned, knowingly suborned perjury from their star witness. That's a third degree felony, aggravated perjury and, um, um, we've got, we there, there's a grievance pending against uh, so much so that even the court of criminal appeals recognized it and vacated the conviction. Now the office says they're going to try him again. Uh, but, uh, but there are bar grievances pending against those two prosecutors who committed these third degree felonies. Um, you, you know, they're not going to be prosecuted criminally, I'm sure, but, uh, like you and I would be, um, but, um, mm-hmm. uh, But there is at least a grievance pending in the bar. We'll see what the bar does.
1: Uh, Roger, biblically, what should be happening to these prosecutors and these police that engage in this kind of conduct?
2: Well, yeah, well, they should be. It's just like somebody who gives false testimony uh, biblically suffers the sentence that he was hoping to, to put on the on the victim of his lie. So it seems to me like that should be the same principle. Uh, The thing observation I was going to make is that Brent Allen Winters points out that under common law centuries ago, there was no professional prosecution. There was no professional D.A. class of people. Uh, The government contracted private lawyer to take the part of the government in a in an open trial and a public trial. And it strikes me that part of our problem here is this uh, insulated power that we have come to the point of worshiping the state. We're going back to the religious aspects. And so we don't believe that vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. We're scared to death. Somebody's going to get away. So we're going to make somebody pay. And 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 we're doing tremendous injustice. I think probably the depth of this thing goes farther than we even know. Uh, there are more people that are falsely convicted than we even imagine. And a lot of it has to do with the religious aspect is by what standard do we judge right and wrong and the procedures that we're supposed to be following? It seems to me like that, this courtroom seems to manipulate the juries as well.
0: All great points. I agree with all that. Um, I know we may be coming close to the end of our time, so can I at least say this? Um, our website is InnocenceTexas.org, and I invite people to visit our website, uh, learn something about the, the 20 men and women that we've exonerated since we've been in existence. Uh, hopefully that number will be more by the end of this year. Um, learn something about us, learn something about the cases and learn about the work we do. We're also on Facebook, of course. We shall and- praying for those. I'm sorry? I said we shall be praying for those. Thank you. And,
1: and I don't want to end without you giving a call to action to Christians about what we need to be doing to, to try to fight back against this. Uh, including supporting like the, the Innocence Project of Texas and other uh, groups that that try to fight against this, what what would your call to action to us be?
0: Well we're, we have started and and we're gonna um, hopefully be kicked into high gear by August. Uh, a legislative agenda um, where we will we have we will have certain bills, that, um, address criminal justice reform, uh, that we're going to take to the legislature that, you know, the Texas legislature meets every two years and they're going to meet in 2021. We're we're not going to wait until 2021 to start work, start working on them and start talking to Mm legislators. And certainly you can contact us and become part of our, um, our, our work to get these laws passed through the legislature. Um, we, um, uh, last session we had advocacy day, um, where we and volunteers went to as many legislative offices as we could to educate them on the bills that we were supporting. Um, and so that's certainly one thing because that's, that's where we can affect change is in the laws themselves. Um, so, um, that, that's, that's certainly one, one way, um, I, obviously, any financial support you can give to our nonprofit, we exist on donations, would be immensely helpful. And, um, and, and, and anyone who is aware of, and of course, I—you know we, we get, honestly, 100 letters a month, maybe. Um, so, uh, but anyone who is aware of someone who has been genuinely wrongly convicted, bring it to our attention. Um, our, our website tells you how to do that. Now, there are a lot of things wrong with the criminal justice system. I mean, Mm -hmm. uh, mass incarceration, unfair bail, you know, institutional racial bias. But what we concentrate on, uh, is this one particular area, completely innocent people who have been convicted of horrible crimes. They had nothing to do with that's our mission. And, um, uh, but I, I think that our legislative agenda this time around may be a little bit broader than addressing that particular uh, situation because of all that has come to light through public awareness in, in the events of the last um, month or so.
1: What would you tell people or the Christian audience out here about becoming a juror?
0: If you're a juror, number one, don't trust what the police say. Mm-hmm. Um Uh, that's the the police believe they can get up there and tell any lie they want to lie. They want to tell, and that people will believe them because they're the police. And, And in a lot of cases, that's true. In a lot of cases, I think jurors don't necessarily believe them, but, but because they're police go along with it anyway. Um, so don't trust the police, what they say, um, at least don't give them any more credibility than than any other witnesses. You don't judge every witness on their own uh, and hold the state to its burden of proof of beyond a reasonable doubt. Uh, so many cases we see, um, you know, it, it's like, how did the jury convict this person? But now that they're convicted. What new evidence is there to exonerate them? I mean, they obviously didn't do it. But the jury convicted them. And and what jurors need to understand is they're pretty much the last word. I mean, sometimes people think, oh, there's appeals, and you know, you, you read about how nine judges have looked at this case, this death penalty case. But they don't they don't look behind the jury verdict. You know, they you know they they look to see if there's technicalities. Uh, they don't look behind the jury verdict. So, so what the jury decides is pretty much the last word. And if, if they don't hold the prosecution to their burden of proof of beyond a reasonable doubt, they may make a terrible mistake.
1: So the jury is the key piece. And in fact, on that documentary, The Innocence Fall that you told me yeah. about, one of the jurors who regretted voting guilty actually said on that show that, well, we felt he was guilty by a preponderance of the evidence. Yeah, which is the totally
0: wrong standard. Absolutely, absolutely, um, you know. And, and so they need to understand what beyond a reasonable doubt means and hold the state to it. And that may mean that may mean that some guilty people go free. But if you hold the state to that standard of proof, it means it just means innocent people will not be convicted. That's one of the
1: uh, one of the most. Go ahead, Roger. I
2: just was repeating, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. We don't believe that anymore.
1: Yeah. One of the most profound things in Proverbs 31.10 about the good wife to me is how the men go to the gate to effect justice. Being a juror is a solemn duty, and it is it, you need to be wise, and you need to be objective, and you need not to favor one side or the other, but to look at the evidence Mm-hmm. directly.
2: Absolutely. It's our best hope for justice. We, you know,
0: we do not have jury trial in Mexico or a civil law system. Yeah, very, very few countries have, civil, have uh, jury trials.
1: Yeah, we're fortunate in that. Yes. Well, Mike, I really appreciate you being with us today and spending all this time. This was a great podcast and I'm hoping that someday we get to have you back when you exonerate someone in, uh, and so that we can talk about
0: it. Well, thank you so much for having me. And I, I look forward to coming on again.
1: Well, Roger, I thought that was a great interview.
0: Yes and
1: I'd like you to have some to to give the audience your afterthoughts from a biblical perspective about what you gathered from the comments of Mike Ware and just talk about that with the audience.
2: Well, what, one of the things that strikes me is that we should not have a professional, a professional uh, class of people that represent the state, that are immune from prosecution, that are prosecuting everybody else. Uh, and secondly, I think we've lost faith in, in the vengeance of God. We do not believe that eventually uh, God is going to take vengeance on the people that we missed. And it isn't our duty to be sure that we prosecute and put somebody in, somebody in jail. We got to put somebody in jail because there is no God. The only God is the state. And we're going to lose control if we don't uh, convict somebody that's not true God will take vengeance well what if somebody else gets killed by this guy well don't do you not believe in God's providence and that's not cold and cruel but just think of how many innocent people we put in jail now and we have an excess of people mostly minorities I think in jail for things that the Bible doesn't even consider a felony and there's yeah, money in that too there there is the money incentive, I remember reading about a judge, I can't remember, it was in Pennsylvania someplace, that was caught, was handed a cookie jar, taking kickbacks from the local jail, privately run jail, to uh, arrest and convict young men and put them in jail, because that's how they get their money.
1: Well, that was a juvenile prison, and he was convicting, or he was sending away both young uh, teenagers, male and female, as young as 13 and 14, to these youth reform schools
0: mm-hmm. and
1: he was run by a private prison company from whom he was getting kickbacks.
2: Yes so exactly. it, we, it, we just opened ourselves up to, to tremendous uh, corruption uh, because as a nation and, and we as the we the people are responsible for this and I think the church has a responsibility to become pietistic we don't think God's law applies. And we, we, uh, in essence, in practice, accept humanistic law as the as the rule of law instead of what God's law says because we don't we don't care about it we don't think it applies, <clears throat> and uh, and this is a tremendous chance to wake up what we're going through right now, <clears throat> and the issue of the whole the is, whole issue of whether we should even have a police force is something we need to think about rationally. Unfortunately, most of the discussion is. Driven by uh, perspectives, for, by, it's, it's a battle of propaganda, it's a war of propagandas. And even very smart people are highly influenced. They're the most easily influenced by propaganda. So these good sayings, and I don't use any of those kinds of uh, mantras or uh, logos or whatever they, what are they, what do they call those things? Uh, memes. Well, not just, not memes, but there's little slogans. That's, that's like advertising slogans. Because uh, that what they are is part of a propaganda campaign And we're just perpetuating that And we're not having a rational discussion And what we like to do is get people Come back to the scripture Come back to the scripture What has God said? What has God said? And until we as church people Get that part right And have a voice and speak up uh, For things like the Innocence Project From a biblical perspective We are going to continue to suffer God's judgment And that's exactly what's happening